Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The waters of the Gulf of Maine are warming faster than almost anywhere on Earth, and that's meant a big disruption to sea life. It's also caused an historic boom in the lobster industry. That includes the so-called gray zone, a disputed area claimed by both the U.S. and Canadian fishermen. It's a place where lobsters are plentiful and tensions are high. This is an example of how climate change is not some distant abstract threat, but one that is having an effect on people's lives right now. We're going to take you inside an international lobster war this week on Next from the New England News Collaborative. Plus, a new investigation finds one state's 911 system is falling short. I continue to see cases where I think that we could have saved people. That's driving me crazy. Also, we'll travel to rural New Hampshire to the bedroom studio of a budding pop star. It's bubblegum pop. You have to chew on the bubblegum, and then when it loses its flavor, you put another piece in. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to share a few stories that really made an impact when we featured them earlier this year. And we're going to start with the story of a 911 call gone terribly wrong. One morning last year, a panicked call came into Rhode Island's emergency call center about a six-month-old baby in the town of Warwick. What transpired during the nearly four-minute call reveals a system that's so flawed it's virtually set up to fail. Lynn Arditi of the Publix Radio and the ProPublica local network has been investigating the state's 911 system, which is an outlier in New England. And a warning for our listeners here, this story contains graphic and disturbing content. 911 is your emergency place. I, I have a baby. He's unresponsive and he has throw up around his mouth and nose. In a medical emergency, every minute matters. It can mean the difference between life or death. And that was the case this Friday morning in February of 2018. Okay. Is the back? She's throwing up right now. Six-month-old Elijah had gone down for his nap. About 20 minutes later, he was found unconscious. The baby's aunt, Jessica, is talking with 911. My aunt's on his back. Make sure he's not on his back. Make sure he's on his back. Not on his back. He's on his back, but he's turning purple. Not, not. Turning purple is a sign the baby isn't breathing. But 18 seconds into the call, the woman at 911 is still trying to position the baby to prevent choking. I would say that this particular call is in the top 15 worst calls I've ever heard in my life. Maybe in the top 10. That's Dr. Jeff Clausen, medical director of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch in Salt Lake City, Utah. He's one of three experts that reviewed the call the family shared with the public's radio. Clausen says the call is a tragic example of what's wrong with the way Rhode Island is training its 911 call takers. For one thing, the call taker missed the most basic signs that the baby wasn't breathing. If the baby was breathing this shallow thing, the baby is not breathing adequately, that was reinforced by fingers and things turning blue. And the baby was also, uh, at times, clearly not breathing. When a baby is not breathing or not breathing normally, that's critical. Because every minute without oxygen increases the likelihood of brain damage and death. 
So a 911 call taker needs to figure out whether or not the baby is breathing normally in the first minute or so of the call. Dr. Peter Antebi is a pediatric emergency medicine physician and medical director for several EMS agencies in South Florida. Not breathing normally and not conscious, that equals cardiac arrest, that equals the need for CPR. Rhode Island public safety officials have defended the way their system is set up, pointing out that call takers are certified in Red Cross CPR and basic first aid. But other states do it differently. In every other New England state, as well as Pennsylvania and New Jersey, among others, 911 calls for cardiac arrest and other medical emergencies are handled by certified emergency medical dispatchers, or EMDs. They're trained to follow carefully scripted instructions to guide someone over the phone to perform CPR. One medical dispatch expert compared these instructions to a pilot's pre-flight checklist. Seattle developed emergency dispatch training decades ago with explicit focus on telephone CPR. And they saw very quickly that they were literally snatching lives from the jaws of death among patients who had cardiac arrest in their homes and in the community. Dr. Mickey Eisenberg is medical director of King County Emergency Medical Services in Seattle, Washington. He says there's a huge opportunity for improving survival rates in places like Rhode Island through better CPR training. If every community had sort of a clone of the Seattle-King County program, including bystander CPR and telephone CPR, you're talking about tens of thousands of additional lives saved. Currently, about 1 in 10 people who experience an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in Rhode Island survive. But experts say the survival rate could double or triple or more, potentially saving hundreds more lives each year. That's if they were given CPR in the first few minutes after a cardiac arrest. That didn't happen with the baby in Warwick. About one minute into the call, the baby's aunt, Jessica, asked the woman at 911, Do we give a mouth-to-mouth? What do we do? Jessica never got a good answer. The 911 call taker repeatedly asks the baby's age. She gives unhelpful instructions, like the ones taught in basic first aid for a baby who is actively choking. And more than one minute into the call, she still hasn't figured out if the baby is breathing. She's okay, not, he's not breathing. Are you sure he's not breathing? You're, you're sure he's not breathing. Because you can't do CPR if he's breathing at all. Because she said you can't do CPR if he's breathing at all. Doctors Antevi and Clausen say that statement is just plain wrong. When she says we cannot do CPR if the baby's breathing, that's not true. It's if the child or adult is not breathing normally, then you have to move to the next step, which is start CPR. No fussing around. Uh, no telling them, well, we can't do this if he's breathing. Matter of fact, I've never heard that on a call in my life. The call goes on. At 3 minutes and 37 seconds, the woman at 911 finally sounds convinced the baby is not breathing and needs CPR. And she tells this to the family like it's a choice rather than a life-saving intervention. Okay. All right. So who's going to give a CPR? Do you, do you want to give them a CPR? The call ends abruptly after 3 minutes and 51 seconds when paramedics arrive, and still the baby has not received CPR. The lack of good pre-arrival medical instructions from 911 frustrates Jason Umbenhauer. He's the deputy chief of emergency medical services at the Warwick Fire Department. There's got to be something. We're doing everything that we possibly can to increase those rates of survival from cardiac arrest. We do advanced training. We use advanced equipment. We try to shorten our response times, but when it comes to what happens prior to our arrival, uh, unfortunately, it's not in their control. 
So they a lot of times wish that somebody would do, tell somebody to do something before we get there. Umbenhauer reviews every emergency call for cardiac arrest that comes into his station. There were more than 80 cardiac arrests in 2018. And only about a quarter of those patients had CPR before EMS workers arrived on the scene. That compares with 40% to 75% who receive CPR before EMS arrives in places like Seattle that have programs to improve care for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. And I continue to see cases where I think that we could have saved people. That's driving me crazy. That's Dr. Joseph Loro, an emergency medicine physician at three hospitals in Rhode Island. He's been helping lead the fight to improve emergency care for cardiac arrest patients. You know, it's something that's a relatively easy fix. It's something that we can do. It's something that's been studied. It's something that happens elsewhere. So why the hell aren't we doing it? Why don't we do it? Lauro and other members of the Rhode Island chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians are behind a bill introduced in the General Assembly this year that would mandate 911 call takers provide pre-arrival instructions for medical emergencies. The bill, sponsored by Representative Mir Ackerman, a Democrat from Cumberland, would require the 911 center to be staffed at all times by at least one call taker who is trained in telephone CPR. Only one for the entire state? That's Dr. Antevi, who heads EMS services in South Florida. One EMD-trained person for an entire state is clearly not enough. It took just three minutes for the Warwick Fire Department to arrive at Barbara's house. She was waiting at her front door, Elijah in her arms. An emergency medical technician whisked the baby into the ambulance and within a minute began CPR. The baby had no pulse and was not breathing. At 10.39 a.m., about 20 minutes after arriving at Hasbro Children's Hospital, Elijah was pronounced dead. The final autopsy report said the baby had been propped on his left side with a bottle in his bassinet. He was later found unresponsive on his back. The report states the cause of death as sudden, unexplained infant death. Afterwards, everyone had questions. The police, the state child welfare agency, the neighbors who saw the police parked in front of their house. The baby's aunt Jessica describes the scene. It's the worst, most emotional day of your life, but they don't treat you like a victim. They treat you like a suspect. But as for the 911 call, nobody asked about that. But I specifically remember here, not a single person ever questioned anything about the 911 call, ever. I mean, there were a million other questions... No one ever said, you know, what what was the 911 call like? Did they give you clear instructions? Did they... Nope. Nope, never asked. Not once. Not once. None of them. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lynn Arditi. That piece is part of a year-long reporting project with the Public Radio and the ProPublica Local Reporting Network. If you've made a 911 call in Rhode Island or been the subject of one, you can help this reporting project. Go to ProPublica.org slash Rhode Island 911 or send an email to Rhode Island 911 at propublica.org. One big part of the 911 system is the rapid response of emergency medical services, or EMS. But in rural parts of Vermont, fewer people are volunteering to staff ambulances. The costs are going up and services are getting harder to deliver. VPR's Howard Weiss-Tisman has been reporting on this issue, and he joins us now. Howard, welcome back to Next. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. You recently reported that small towns are considering closing or merging EMS largely due to a a lack of volunteers. What's going on? Well, the issue has been going on for a few years, but a lot of people say the challenges facing EMS companies are really reaching a tipping point. 
Now, in Vermont, we have a patchwork of all-volunteer and part-volunteer and even some fully paid staff at our EMS and ambulance companies. And for those ambulance services that rely on volunteers and even those that pay something, there's just not enough bodies, especially in our most rural towns. Vermont has some real demographic challenges. Young people are leaving, and the rest of us are growing older. And these ambulance services can't fill their open slots. The town of Cabot is way up in the Northeast Kingdom, and Andy Luce has been working there for more than 30 years. And this is what he told VPR about the problem they've been having with staffing. We got a bunch of people we trained. They went to other services or moved out or went to college, didn't come back, or went to the service and didn't come back. So at town meeting earlier this month, Cabot voted to shut down its full-time ambulance company and put some money aside to contract with a nearby service. And the town also set up a committee to try to come up with some long-term solutions. So uh, a lack of young people who want to get into this business, that's a part of it. But it seems it's becoming harder and more expensive to become a volunteer. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that's right. There, there are many more requirements now than there were 10 or 20 years ago. EMS crew members have to be certified, and they have to get their credentials updated every few years. This costs money, and it takes time, and EMS directors say that makes it even harder to convince people to join, even when they can track down someone who has interest and time to serve. So what are some of the other issues that ambulance services across the state are facing right now, Howard? Well, insurance and federal reimbursements don't really cover what it costs to drive out, again, especially in rural regions where ambulances might have farther to travel. Um, Rural areas are serving aging and low-income residents who tend to be sicker, so call volumes are up statewide. Um, Equipment is much more expensive now, and struggling communities that maybe had a paper mill or a manufacturing plant to lean on in the past, that help just isn't there anymore. And EMS directors say the low unemployment rate is hurting them. Even when you're getting paid, there are plenty of other opportunities to work in something that maybe makes better money and which is much less stressful. And, you know, people talk about just how difficult some of this work is, traveling out to treat your neighbors and coming face-to-face with mental health issues, abuse and opioid overdoses and seeing some tough living situations. It's tough work. So there are a lot of challenges out there. Yeah, so with the challenges for staffing EMS and some of the financial problems you've talked about, are we actually seeing some problems in response time? Is it, is it harder for Vermonters who call 911 to get the services that they expect? Yeah, so what we're seeing is that as more companies close or reduce their service, it, it puts a strain on the whole system. Ambulance and fire departments rely on a mutual aid system, and when one town needs help, they can call their neighbor. But as towns struggle more and more, it's just harder to back each other up, again, because there are fewer bodies. A recent report found that response times, especially in the rural areas, inched up last year. And when you're dealing with life and death situations, a few minutes here and there really make a difference. So we are seeing an impact right now from this problem. So, so what is the solution? What are people telling you? Well, it's tough, and that's what has people so concerned right now, is that there really isn't an easy fix to all of this. Uh, Vermont and some of the other New England states are trying to figure out how to get more young people to live in rural areas. 
There's some talk of asking the state to cover the licensing and training costs or maybe help out with low reimbursement rates, but there's not a lot of money floating around Montpelier right now. Gwyn Zakoff is with the group Vermont League of Cities and Towns, which is a statewide lobbying organization that advocates for municipalities in the state house. And Zakoff says we're at a critical point now, and we need to start looking at the problem from a system-wide perspective. And it has to come from the state level as saying, okay, this is the priority, and we need to talk about regionalization and how to get there. It's just not going to happen at the local level until it either gets to a crisis mode or you have direction from the legislature. Um, Last year, lawmakers asked for a report, which came out earlier this year, and it found that almost 80 percent of those that responded say it's hard finding volunteers and staff. So lawmakers this year are talking about workforce development and about working with community colleges and high schools to generate more interest in training for EMS work. Some towns are putting reserve funds away or agreeing to pay stipends or even bringing on paid staff for the first time, but... I think, unfortunately, we'll probably see more ambulance and EMS companies shutting down before any real changes are put in place. Hmm. Howard Weiss-Tisman is VPR's reporter for Southern Vermont and the Connecticut River Valley, and you can find links to his reporting at nexttonewengland.org. Howard, thanks as always for joining us. I appreciate it. You're welcome, John. Coming up, how a pop star who made a splash at South by Southwest got her start in rural New England. But first, a lobster war on the U.S.-Canada border. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. There's a section of ocean along the border between the U.S. and Canada that's considered a gray zone, a stretch of over 200 square miles that the U.S. and Canada both say they've got claim to. And in recent years, as seas warm and lobsters move north, this gray zone has become prime lobster fishing ground, sparking tension between American and Canadian lobstermen, both trying to capitalize on this catch. A documentary from David Abel and Andy Laub, Lobster War, the fight over the world's richest fishing grounds, highlights the increasing tension along this gray zone. David Abel spoke with us when the documentary was released earlier this year. He covers environmental issues for the Boston Globe. David, welcome back to Next. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start by telling us about this gray zone? Describe the place, if you would. So it's actually a really beautiful place, and the gray zone is all around this one island called Machaya Seal Island. It's basically a rock, and it's been a puffin colony for a very long time. That rock has been the center of a dispute that goes back to the end of the Revolutionary War, and both the United States and Canada have claimed this island. And nobody really cares too much about the island, but the waters around the island are what both countries really are laying claim to. And those waters were not terribly important to either country for generations. 
However, in the last decade or so, as the waters in the Gulf of Maine have warmed faster than nearly any other body of water on the planet, lobsters have moved north into those waters which are cooler than the waters further to the south. And as a result of that, the lobster population there has boomed. And that boom has led the Canadians, who long ceded those waters to the Americans, to say, hey, those are our fishing grounds too, and we're going to fish them. And that decision has led to a surge of Canadians fishing in that area, and that has led to all kinds of conflict with the Americans who traditionally fish that area. And that has involved all kinds of gear conflict, sabotage, people hauling each other's traps, and so forth. So let's now talk through the climatic conditions that have changed over the course of decades that have allowed this to become this prime lobster fishing territory. Explain what exactly is happening that is forcing the large lobster population to move from places where you could traditionally fish lobster in southern New England up to this point in northern New England, the far tip of Maine, that's become in dispute. So as we all know, the planet is warming and the oceans absorb a lot of the carbon dioxide and a lot of that heat. And that has caused oceans throughout the world to warm. But the Gulf of Maine, for a variety of reasons, has warmed faster than just about any other body of water on the planet. And that is part due to the Gulf Stream and something called the Labrador Stream uh, that brings cool water in from the north, from, from the Greenland and Newfoundland areas. And those, those streams are being disrupted by the warming. And that has had all kinds of consequences for species throughout the Atlantic coast, but particularly in the Gulf of Maine. And we've seen a collapse in the cod fishery, for example, which is the iconic species that brought Europeans to the United States uh, centuries ago and helped found uh, the, the 13 colonies and provide an economic engine for them. And lobsters later became a significant source of revenue for our economy. And for many years, they provided a significant income along the shores of southern New England, Connecticut, even Long Island Sound had a substantial lobster fishery. But the waters there have also warmed, and they're now so warm that the lobster population in that area, south of Cape Cod, through Long Island Sound, has collapsed. In some areas, the lobster population is less than uh, 90% of what it was at its peak. And that has led to hundreds of uh, people who traditionally fished lobster for generations to have to find another line of work. And that line of warming where lobsters can thrive has moved further north. If you move even further north from mid-coast Maine up into Canada, the lobster population over the last decade has actually increased substantially because those waters, which have also warmed, are now in a sweet spot. And lobsters thrive within a relatively narrow band of temperatures. David, you've been an environmental reporter for a long time. And as we've covered the environment here, we sometimes run into a problem of trying to humanize something like climate change or 
large-scale environmental problems so that people can really understand them. Do, do you sense that, that this issue, the very human issue of people going out into the ocean to do a very dangerous job, uh, to try to make money for their families in what could be a, a declining fishery, competing with other people who are trying to do exactly the same thing from another country, do, do you have the sense that this is the sort of story that helps people understand what climate change is all about? Well, my hope is that, again, that people see that the warming of the planet and the warming of our oceans is not some intangible, abstract phenomenon that's going to, you know, affect our children in 50 years, but that we are seeing it play out in many ways. And and it perhaps is no more visible than how it affects some of the iconic species that we in New England have lived off for generations. And we are seeing historic changes in our waters. Uh, we're seeing that not just with lobster, we're not, not just with cod, but we're seeing black sea bass, which traditionally was fished in the mid-Atlantic regions, move further north, creeping into our waters. We're seeing right whales which are on the brink of extinction as their food sources have been moving further north and making it more difficult for them to put on the weight they need. But the point here is that we are seeing epic changes to the historic species that have been in our waters from the time and well before then that the pilgrims arrived. And we have a new world that we're facing as our fishermen and our region tries to adapt to these changes. The film is called Lobster War, the fight over the world's richest fishing grounds. And the director is David Abel, a longtime environmental reporter for the Boston Globe. You can find information about where this documentary is screening around our region on nextnewengland.org. David, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. There's another potential impediment coming for fishermen, at least those who work off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. The massive Vineyard Wind Offshore Wind Project would be the first of its kind in the U.S. It's expected to start construction this fall. The $2 billion project has come after a seven-year battle between the company, federal regulators, and fishermen who are concerned about the effects of the wind farms on their livelihoods. And despite industry efforts to address the economic impact, the maritime industry says its concerns are far from settled. From the Public's Radio, Nadine Sabai reports. That's a lobster trap. goes down the bottom like that. They come in the side heads and go in the back. We put a bait bag in there, bait. And they're on a trawl line or a single. In Ken Schneider's 40-year fishing career, he's fished for pretty much everything that's out in the mid-Atlantic. At 60 years old, Schneider spends most of his time hunting for lobster. He takes his son with him sometimes. But now, Schneider says all of this is at risk. He and other fishermen in New Bedford will soon have to share the open ocean with Vineyard Wind. The company is building the nation's first large-scale offshore wind farm, 84 turbines about 14 miles off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. There are final federal and state permits still pending approval, but it's expected onshore construction will start this fall. And by next year, construction will move to the ocean as the over 600-foot turbines settle in their new home. Schneider says the seismic activity from the construction is going to change the ocean floor, and marine life isn't going to stay around. He thinks he could lose over 30% of his lobster catch because of it. 
this is going to affect every fisherman that fishes around these windmills. These crabs, these lobsters, seismic activity bothers them, I believe. And uh, it's not benef- benefiting any one of us except a foreign company. Schneider's not alone. Fishermen along the Rhode Island and Massachusetts coast feared they could lose a significant portion of their catch. This is especially true for squid fishermen because the wind farm area will be constructed near their fishing grounds. Vineyard wind and studies from federal regulators show the wind farm should have a relatively minimal impact on marine life there. But seven years later, fishermen are still skeptical of the findings, which they say generally favor the offshore wind industry. What you have out there is a large, fairly homogeneous environment in the seafloor, particularly in the areas where the the wind farms are going in, and you're putting out hundreds of, of islands. And when you create an island or when a volcano creates an island, you create a different ecosystem. Dr. Kevin Stokesbury is on the Liberty Boat in New Bedford, preparing for the last sea scallop survey before Vineyard Wind begins construction. Okay, let's swing this end around. There we go. He's a professor of fisheries oceanography at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. Stokesbury says because this wind farm is the largest of its kind in the country, there are a lot of unknowns. The surveys he's working on give a snapshot of the species that live in the ocean floor in order to better predict the future of the stock. It's a type of survey, Dr. Stokesbury says, could have been done years ago in order to better understand how turbines could affect fish populations. But to put it fairly bluntly, no one put up the money to look at the studies. These kind of surveys, we've been doing them for 20 years. We just have to have the organization and the funding sources, and they should be, in my opinion, from the federal government, supported by the industries, to get out there and do it. And they haven't. The scallop industry conducted these kinds of surveys for years. And now, once construction begins and the turbines come up, they'll be able to have a better understanding of how the ocean floor has changed compared to their past surveys. Krista Bank, the fisheries liaison for Vineyard Wind and a former field biologist for the fishing industry, agrees more studies like these should have been done. In my opinion, it was a large oversight of government agencies who knew better, I would say, than the fishing industry that this was coming. And had there been more foresight and planning, some of the issues we're dealing with now might have been avoided. Vineyard Wind has set up a $4.2 million compensation package for Rhode Island fishermen who will be directly impacted by the wind farm. An additional $12.5 million will be put in a trust to cover any additional costs over the next five years. Now, Vineyard Wind's compensation package for Massachusetts fishermen is currently being reviewed by the state. Fishermen there don't anticipate much from the deal. I don't expect there to be any trust between fishermen and Vineyard Wind right now. Um, trust takes time, and it takes deeds and showing what what we're doing to try to to work and make things as easy as it can be for the fishermen to adjust to this change. Vineyard Wind's turbines are expected to provide enough energy to power over 400,000 Massachusetts homes. And it's just one of more than a dozen active wind areas set up for potential development across the Northeast. But lobsterman Ken Schneider wonders what the future of fishing will look like as offshore wind continues to grow. Generations have fished out here and now we're not allowed to. Now 
next generation coming up, my son, no, you know, he's going to lose too. It's all just, I want to call it a big fugazi. It's a fake diamond. It's just, you know, they're just pouring money into it. And it's, in the end, you know, we're not going to know 20 years down the line until what happens. He knows he won't be fishing 20 years from now, but whatever happens will affect his son's future security as the industry is forced to work alongside green energy. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nadine Sabai. As we've been reporting, new measures are being considered to keep the endangered North Atlantic right whale from being tangled in the ropes that lobstermen use to haul their traps. And the changing food sources have kept the whales in the crowded waters of Cape Cod Bay longer than normal this year, meaning an extended closure of the lobster season there. But there is some good news. Researchers have reported at least three new right whale calves in the waters of New England. It's a big development for a species that's down to about 400 in total. It suffered from both die-offs and low reproduction rates. We thought this would be a good occasion to revisit a story by Miriam Wasser, which takes us inside the New England Aquarium, where they're learning about the whale's health by looking at the world's largest collection of right whale poop. Yes, poop. Here's her story. While families and schoolchildren look at jellyfish and sea turtles in the aquarium, scientist Katie Graham studies poop behind the scenes. So our freezer is at negative 80 degrees Celsius, which is very, very cold. Uh, and we have five shelves jam-packed full of poop. <laughs> Graham works in the Marine Animal and Ocean Health Stress Lab. The lab stores hundreds of fecal samples in a big upright freezer. Right whale and manatee feces is on the top. We've got bowhead feces and baleen on the second shelf. We've got uh, fur seal poop on the third and fourth shelves, and uh, I think some shark mucus and other assorted goodies on the bottom shelf. She takes a clear plastic container from the freezer. It's partially coated in frost, but inside, a hunk of something red. A right whale's diet makes its poo the color of cayenne powder. Does it smell bad? Uh, it doesn't smell bad when it's frozen, but when it uh, starts to thaw, it gets very, very stinky. Why all this poop talk? The short answer is that it could help prevent right whales from going extinct. It's hard to study big marine animals in the wild, even harder to do it in a non-invasive way. 20 years ago, marine scientist Roz Rowland wanted to understand why right whales weren't having more calves. She had an idea. I knew from studies of primates and other terrestrial species that you could measure hormones in fecal samples of these other species, and I figured, why not whales? If you're wondering how she collects it, the answer is with a boat and a net because it floats. Rollins' team now has about 400 right whale samples. To test one, they defrost a few grams under a fume hood, then dehydrate it, sift it into a powder, and combine it with alcohol to make a tincture. And I think what's particularly amazing is how much you can learn about these animals without ever putting a hand on them. It's just, you know, it's like you're, you go to the doctor, you get a panel of blood tests. We're getting that type of information on animals that you can't capture or, you know, handle in any way. Feces can tell you a lot about reproductive and metabolic health, stress levels, biotoxins, infectious diseases. Rollin calls it a goldmine of scientific information. Recently, the team's focused on thyroid health. Data suggests right whales don't have enough food, which Rollins says could explain why they're showing up in odd places, places that bring them into contact with humans. You know, they're being entangled in fishing gear, they're being hit by ships, there's a lot of underwater noise. We're now going to, uh, talking about seismic exploration off the coast, there's going to be, you know, development of wind farms. All of this activity on our coastal ecosystem is affecting their habitats. If we know it's harming the whales, 
Rollins says we can design policies to protect them. The right whale program has yielded so much information that the aquarium is expanding it to other marine animals. Like their three fur seals, Luna, Chidak, and Katovi. Here's scientist Katie Graham again. She's leading the fur seal poop project. What we're trying to do is build um, a library of hormones um, so we can learn about their reproduction. We're one of only three aquariums in the U.S. which have northern fur seals, and so everybody's actually contributing fecal samples from their animals uh, to help us build up our library, which is really cool. So you get poop in the mail? You get poop in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) A big shipment of poop. (laughs) The fur seal hormone study is still in its infancy, but Graham hopes the work will help threatened wild seals in the future. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Miriam Wasser. Coming up, we'll meet a pop star with regional roots and we'll visit a museum filled with accordions. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. The South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas, has become music's biggest showcase event. There was so much happening there this March that NPR music critic Stephen Thompson helpfully curated a list of 100 artists worth watching called the Austin 100. On that list is a pop singer whose national profile is rising. As a matter of fact, she was just featured in Rolling Stone. She calls herself Sir Baby Girl. But she's not from one of the country's big music scenes. In fact, she recorded her debut album in her childhood bedroom in rural New Hampshire. Producer James Napoli has the backstory. We're in a tiny venue in a small town in Vermont. This is an odd space. The walls are lined with strange artifacts and curiosities, including a canning jar that holds Elvis's gallstones, or so the label says. It's the type of place where outcasts and misfits feel right at home. Tonight's performer is no exception. It's Kelsey Hogue, a.k.a. Sir Baby Girl. She's wearing a backwards bubblegum pink ball cap and shiny silk robe. She cradles the mic close to her mouth. Her lips are painted cornflower blue, the same as her eyeshadow. This isn't the type of performer you might expect to see in rural New England, but Hogue's been here for the past year, since she moved back in with her parents. This is my childhood bedroom, and I guess it still is because I'm still a child and it's still a bedroom. Her space is half bedroom, half music studio. The lavender walls are covered in ticket stubs, musical theater flyers, photos of female pop idols, awkward middle school portraits. There are instruments everywhere. We got an acoustic guitar, we have an electric guitar, which I bedazzled. Well, my first instrument was saxophone, alto saxophone, because of Lisa Simpson. And then, and then bass, because I wanted to play Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Hogue took up singing as a teenager and dreamed of becoming a Broadway star. She studied theater in Boston, but that didn't work out. So she moved to Chicago to be a stand-up comic. That didn't work out either. Then she got fired from her job and sunk into depression. But out of these failures, she wrote a song called Heels. It's super catchy. 
She posted it on SoundCloud and Instagram. Lots of people liked it, including her family back in New Hampshire. I got a call from my brother one day, and he was just like, you should move home. You need to do your music. And I was like, I think you're right. At that point, she realized she really did want to make music, but didn't have the money or support to do it in the city. So she moved back home. I'm running home with my heels on my head And everything, everything that you said She set up this studio and taught herself how to record and produce her own tracks. The style's a mixture of musical theater, absurdist comedy, and pop. Every, like, I want to be addicted to my own songs. You know, that's my goal when I write my songs is I want them to be just like, have to play it again, have to play it again. It's bubblegum pop. You have to chew on the bubblegum, and then when it loses its flavor, you put another piece in. But the songs are more than empty calories. For Hogue, they're an expression of her identity as a non-binary, bisexual person. I identify with being a girl, but I also identify with being a boy. I feel like I am a girl and a boy. So yeah, so I use she, hers, her as my pronoun, so like... Sir Baby Girl, she's over there. Or I use they, them, theirs. So like, Sir Baby Girl, they're over there. Or I've started using he, him, his. Sir Baby Girl, he's over there. Um, For me, like, each pronoun feels affirming. You can hear these themes in many of her songs, like the tracks Flirting With Her, Pink Light, and Cheerleader. I'm just, like, obsessed with gender extremes and gender expression extremes, so I love that cheerleaders are extremely feminine and extremely masculine. I want to fall like a cheerleader. For the record, there were no cheerleaders in her high school. Still, the teenage experience looms large in Hogue's music. I'm kind of, I feel like I'm going back and queering my growing up experience. Like, I wasn't out. I didn't even know I could be. And in high school, Hogue could see her peers every day. Now, it's not so easy. Most of her friends have moved away. She's isolated. That was something that I knew going into moving back here for a year. I was just like, that's the sacrifice I'm going to make is like, I'm not going to have a traditional social life of someone in their 20s, I guess. So she goes online, where she's built an active following on Instagram. She shared her music there, which actually caught the attention of an indie label. Now Hogue has a deal with Father Daughter Records. It's a huge step, but still no guarantee that she'll be a star. So she keeps hustling. All I want to do now is just play live and tour it and tour it and tour it and like be around humans again. And she has another dream. Honestly, I really want backup dancers. Like, it's not a joke. It's this is not a drill. I really want two backup dancers. They're all dancing and they're all free. I was once them, but now I freeze when someone approaches. And I think I might know them, know them, and no one knows the difference from my laughter and my screams when everyone around me's twenty shots under the sea. One of her biggest supporters is Matt Mazur. He's booked here at a few local shows. He's seen hundreds of artists play here, but when he saw Sir Baby Girl take the stage for the first time, she stood out. You can really tell that Kelsey wanted to to make that leap and has been putting a lot of time and effort into preparing for that. It's so magic to see it happen. It seems like she's inspiring a lot of people to to be who they are and be okay with that. 
That's Hannah Hoffman, I mean, a performer and Hoag's close friend since high school. It's hard. I mean, it's hard enough to just exist as a human. So it's like really cool to have somebody help you feel like what you're doing and who you are is justified and important. Back at the show, Sir Baby Girl's on stage in her pink hat and blue lipstick. Before her final song, she makes a big announcement. I am moving to Brooklyn in a month. Come find me. Come find me. Tonight, in front of a few dozen people in small-town Vermont, Sir Baby Girl is still dreaming of becoming a queer pop idol. But in just a few months, she'll play for packed crowds at the country's biggest music showcase, with two backup dancers by her side. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm James Napoli in White River Junction, Vermont. For the last few minutes of the show, we're going to let you hear another sound you might not expect in a quiet country town. Tucked away in the northwest corner of Connecticut, just a few miles from the Massachusetts border, stands the New England Accordion Connection and Museum Company. The museum houses over 600 accordions, thousands of pages of sheet music, and a jukebox filled with accordion music. Producer Lily Tyson went to check it out and to meet its creator, Angelo Paul Ramuni. The story starts when I was 10 years old. Out on Long Island, Italian family, my mother came to me. That fateful day, she came to me and said, your father and I want you to learn how to play the accordion. And I looked at her. I remember it vividly. I looked at her and I said, Mom, anything but that. Anything but that. (laughs) So for about seven years, uh, maybe almost eight I took lessons, played in a band, competitions, and uh, high stress, and I learned how to play. But when I was going to Fairfield University, I put that thing back in the closet, and it stayed there for 42 years. (music) 2008, at this point, my wife and I were in Vermont. And I woke up one morning, sat on the edge of the bed, and I had this urge to play the accordion again. The museum got opened in October 2011. And we had about 100 accordions, and it just started. We found more of them as we... um, moved along and people brought them in because they want to see them go to a uh, a place where somebody might get some use out of them. Uh, and generally the accordions they bring in belong to uh, relatives of theirs or close friends and they've been sitting in a closet and they just didn't want to throw them out. It was um, something that someone very precious or somebody very important in their family used to play. All right. This is a nice polka. This is something Carl Sandburg, great American poet, wrote about the concept of happiness. I asked the professors who teach the meaning of life 
to tell me what is happiness. And I went to famous executives who bossed the work of thousands of men. They all shook their heads and gave me a smile, as though I was trying to fool with them. And then one Sunday afternoon, I wandered out along the Des Plaines River, and I saw a crowd of Hungarians under the trees with their women and children and a keg of beer and an accordion. I put that there only because that's what we got here. We're happy. And you need the beer, you need the family, (laughs) but you need the accordion too. Isn't that nice? Now, we can, uh, well, we can take you to Italy. It's a very cheap trip. But all I got to do is change some of the settings and... uh, Even the people that don't want to be here, they're here because a spouse, a friend dragged them along. Uh, they smile. They giggle. Uh, they, they, they just shake their heads, and, but everybody's laughing, smiling. There's no political differences. There's no religious differences. We're just all of a sudden having fun together. And they're all strangers. You have to smile. It's the accordion. <laughs> That story was produced by Lily Tyson. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. As a matter of fact, you can just search for Next New England. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Music this week by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Aubrey Haddard, and Mile 12. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.